I, um, I love movies and stories. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Though. Have you ever been watching a show or watching a movie and, uh, and, and stories are particularly tricky and powerful in this way? Because have you ever been watching a show or a movie and you get so sucked into the story that you find yourself like rooting for people in the story to do things that are the opposite of kind of how you live, like the standards that you have and the values that you hold for your life. Like you would never do that thing, but you're so engrossed in their story that you're just like, that's the best thing for them to do. I want them to do it. Like, like there, there's times where, you know, you watch stories and it sounds weird when we talk about it like this, you're going to be like, ah, I don't know about that, but I'm going to give you some examples and you'll be able to relate. Like where we're just like, oh man, that guy has a horrible marriage and his wife is just terrible to him and she's evil. And that lady at his work is just so sweet and they really connect and they're just perfect for each other. And it would be magical. And he should just have an affair with her and divorce that lady and marry it. You know, like, and then you're just like, wait a minute, that's weird. Like, why am I even thinking of that? Right. Or like you'll watch a show and you know, like it's, it's a, 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 a thriller or, you know, an action. You know, just like, I hate that guy, the bad guy. Like he's so conniving and calculating. How does he keep getting away with it? And I wish they would just kill this dude. Like I just, just kill that guy. Right. And, and, and you do this as much as we're just like, I mean, I don't really know about that. You do this because you know the backstory, right? So we hope that Dexter Morgan gets away with it, right? We hope nobody catches Walter White in some weird way. Like, come on, Walter, you can do it. You can make that meth, right? <laughs> we hope that Marty Bird sometimes, somehow gets over on the cartel or, or even that June Osborne, because we know what happened to her. Like, we know what she went through. Like, she justifies murder. You know, like, we, 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 we want them to get away with it. Like, this happened to me recently. I was watching the, the show Ozark, and there's a, there's a character in the show. Her name's Darlene. And, like, I literally, I don't, I almost, I don't know if I should give away this plot. But I've been waiting for her to die for, like, five seasons. I'm just, come on, somebody kill Darlene. I can't stand this lady. Right? But it's amazing how powerful stories can be. Right? And we're actually more susceptible to them and more influenced by them than we actually think we are in all different kinds of ways, which is really important for us to be kind of aware of in general, but it's particularly relevant to us in this current conversation about happiness. And that's because everywhere we turn in our culture, whether it's movies or shows, entertainment, commercials, whatever, we're constantly being bombarded and told that if you're unhappy, that it's at least partly due to the fact that your life, well, it's just too predictable and routine and mundane, and it's just too boring. You're just, you got a boring life. That's why you're not happy, right? And so this is actually a really common plot device or trope in movies and stories and certainly in marketing and advertising. And so in a movie, the solution is for that person to do something out of the ordinary and sort of blow up their life so they they can actually have a life that they love because they're trapped in a life that they hate. Right? And, and a commercial, the solution is for them to always buy something out of the ordinary, for them to spend money or go into debt to trade in, to upgrade, to get something new. Because that's, after all, what will make you happy. We're constantly being told, you know, being hit with this nonstop message that all of life should just be this ongoing, never stop, never end adventure that's just full of brand new things and exciting experiences that will just fill up every single moment of every day of your life. And of course, you know, the same people that are selling us that narrative and that idea are the same ones that are defining what those adventures are and what those things are and what those experiences are and what we should be spending money on and all that kind of stuff. And the problem is, is like in the movies and in commercials, it kind of always seems to work, 
But you and I both know that like in real life, if we did some of that stuff, if we followed every one of those inclinations, we would be relationally devastated and broke and in debt or in prison or dead, like so many of the characters that I mentioned. And we're not dumb, right? Like we know that we're being lied to at some, that we're being sold a bill of goods. We know we, but, but and so we don't fully buy into the hype or the narrative. Rationally, we know that that's not exactly how life works. The problem is, is that we are not rational beings. Like we, we do things based on emotion, not, ration, not rationale. And, and so we can't escape the sense that if we're not you know, being actively entertained or we're not having fun, that something is wrong and our lives are broken and we need to change our life. And because that's why we're unhappy. After all, it seems like everyone else around us, when you go on social media, everybody's living in a beer commercial because beer commercials, everybody's happy and they're just having fun at a beach and they're floating and life is just one and nobody cares if they spill their beer. You know it's not real because in real life, if you spill your beer, they're crying. Like, ah, I just paid $12 for this. You know, it's like, you, and, but that's everybody else's life. They're everyone else, everywhere else is doing something more interesting and entertaining and exciting and enriching than we are. And obviously that is the main narrative on social media. It's everybody's highlight reel. And every time you open your phone, you're being reminded from all kinds of sources. Well, I mean, you're not really that happy, are you? You should probably be doing something more or different or exciting or fun or beautiful because everybody else is and look at how happy they are. Why aren't you happy? What's wrong with your life? See, the cultural message for us is that happiness equals fun. We got to have fun all the time. And if anything is even remotely routine or repetitive or predictable, it's probably making you miserable and you should feel sad for living such a boring life because in our culture, boredom is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone is that they be bored. But is that actually true? Well, you can just look around and know that it's not... It's, it's not true at all, right? Because just looking at the reality in our world and the people around us, pursuing a constant emotional high hasn't left us happier. It's actually left us more distracted and depressed than ever before, historically. And part of the reason is because all of the technology in our life is rigged to regularly present us with the easy thing or the entertaining thing or the novel thing or the fun thing, not really the thing that's important or that matters, or that has meaning. One of the conversations that we have in our family all the time with our kids as parents, we have uh, a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old and a almost 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. And one of the things that we have done um, since the time my oldest son was just a little kid is having an ongoing conversation with them about the difference between what's fun and what's fulfilling because they're not the same thing, right? We often confuse pleasure for happiness and we do the same thing with fun and fulfillment. And our kids are constantly being told that their life should just be fun, 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 nonstop fun, that that is what will make them happy. Now, I, I want my kids to learn how to build happiness in their life, but you and I both know that that doesn't come from having nonstop fun. Does it? And it sounds a little bit like I'm down on fun. If you know me, I'm not down on fun at all. I love to have fun. Right, but part of the reason that, that it's difficult for me to have this conversation with my kids sometimes is because as a parent, I don't want to admit it, but given the choice, I'd prefer sometimes to pursue what's fun over what's fulfilling. 
And so just like with pleasure though, there's nothing wrong with having fun that God created that he made you so that you could experience all of that stuff. But the constant pursuit of it ends up being unfulfilling and a lot of you know, what produces fulfillment in our life isn't always the thing that's fun in the moment. And so we keep hitting that button over and over and over again, hoping that it will make us happy, but it just ends up over time leaving us empty. Now, not surprisingly, God talks a lot to us in the scriptures uh, way more about what's fulfilling than he does with, about what's fun. And so there's a place in the New Testament where this guy named Paul, he writes this letter um, to a group of people in an area called Galatia. So he writes a letter to a church there. And, and not really surprisingly, he tells, he's telling them and he's telling us to prioritize for them to pursue God. But the, the reason that he gives is actually kind of interesting. So check out what he says in Galatians chapter five, verse 19. He says, people's desires make them give in to immoral ways, filthy thoughts, and shameful deeds. They worship idols and practice witchcraft and hate others and are hard to get along with. I, uh, every time I read these kinds of lists, there's things that are on the list that I'm like, yeah, that's clearly bad, like witchcraft, okay. But hard to get along with, that's in the same... It's in the same list. I mean, I know, a lot of, I know a lot of people that are hard to get along with. I mean, they're fine, all right? And goes on, it says, people became jealous, become jealous, angry, and selfish. They not only argue and cause trouble, know some of those people, but they are envious. They get drunk, carry on at wild parties, and do other evil things as well. I told you before, and I am telling you again, no one who does these things will share in the blessings of God's kingdom. Now, this is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect to find in the Bible, right? A list of things that are just like, God's just like, don't do this. This is, you shouldn't live like this. The problem is, is if we were just to be honest for a minute in our less sort of pious and more honest moments, part of us thinks, I mean, like some of that doesn't sound that bad, God. I mean, I've done some of those things and it was actually kind of fun, right? I mean, filthy thoughts and shameful deeds, that could be the name of my autobiography, all right? So come on, God, what's going on? But when we, are, when we take a step back and we're honest a little bit, we know that if, if you've known anybody who's lived that way for more than a season, you know that there's nothing glamorous or fun about it for them at all. The Apostle Paul goes on, next couple of verses. He says, but God's spirit makes us loving, happy, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle and self-controlled. There is no law against behaving in any of these ways. Now, maybe you've heard these verses before, maybe you haven't, but here's what I want you to notice. And even if you've read them, maybe you haven't like thought about it in this way. See, part of what the consistent pursuit of God produces in us are things that aren't just ways of behaving, but ways of living, of, of being in the world. So he begins his list of things that get produced in our life with peace, patience, and joy. He actually, in this translation, it uses the word happy, right? And, and he uses those things as qualities that we would possess, but you cannot possess those qualities without feeling them. You cannot possess peace in your life without feeling peaceful. You cannot possess patience as a quality of your character without feeling patient. You, same with joy, right? And, and he uses love in there too. See, how we feel is a product of what our life is actually producing. 
And then he goes on, the rest of it, he gives the rest of the list is kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are all the very descriptions of a fulfilling life, right? Nobody has ever, if you met somebody who checked all those boxes, you've never met someone who is kind and gentle and self-controlled and faithful and good, and they're miserable and unhappy with their life because they were just too good or too kind or too self-controlled. I've never once thought, man, if I get more self-control in my life, I'm just gonna be miserable. No, probably like you, I'm like, if I get any more out of control in this area of my life, I can't stand, I'm tired of, I've, I cannot tell you the number of times I've said to my wife, I am tired of me. I'm tired of my own act. Just put me out of my misery. Just shoot me in the head. Now, sometimes what's been, what's produced in us, if you are a longtime churchgoer, what gets produced in us from religion is fear or guilt or shame. And a lot of times we begin to behave in some of those ways because of fear and guilt and shame. And so it masquerades those things and that will make you miserable. But that's completely different, right? Because there's a difference between me being self-controlled because I'm afraid that God's gonna do something to me versus me being connected to God and self-control growing in my life and being expressed in the way that I live. There's a difference between me being manipulated by guilt and shame from religion to be good versus being connected to the source of good and good flowing out of my life because that's what my life is producing. So the cultural message is happiness equals fun, but the scriptural message is that happiness equals fulfillment. And so what is fulfillment? Well, in this passage, the apostle Paul is like, Oh, it's fruitfulness. It's an awareness that you're becoming who God created you to be. It's stepping into the relationship with Jesus and your life beginning to produce good. It's the sense that you're not just experiencing a good life, but that your life is producing something good in the world. The challenge for us is that that actually requires us to prioritize discipline over distraction, which is not a lot of fun. Right? And that obviously creates a lot, of a, ten- a lot of tension for us in our lives because sometimes what's fun is fulfilling, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes what's fulfilling is fun, but often it's not. And when we're forced to make the choice in the moment, that's when we actually come face to face with ourselves and our priorities and our values. Now, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is the story of a guy named David, and it's the story of him fighting a giant named Goliath. And even if you're not a church person or you didn't grow up reading the Bible, you probably know at least part of the story of David and Goliath. Uh, and, and, and there's a reason why it's one of the most famous stories, because it's a great story. It's an incredible story. And David kills a giant. He's just a teenage boy. He kills a giant. He becomes an instant hero, an instant sensation, so much so that after the battle, look what happens in first excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 18. It says, whatever, in verse five, whatever Saul asked, Saul was the king of Israel, by the way, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So the king made him commander over the men of war, an an appointment that was welcomed by the people and by Saul's officers alike. And when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Women from all the towns of Israel came out and sang and danced for joy. There was a party in the street with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. song, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, what's not to love about that? That's awesome. If you're David, 
That's amazing. He's the hot new warrior and it's not just hype. He didn't just, it wasn't one hit wonder. Like he killed the, 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 the giant, but he seemingly never loses. It says whatever the king gave him to do, whatever assignment, whatever battle that he was given to do, he was successful. And so he skyrockets up through the ranks. He becomes the commander over the entire army of Israel. And the ladies are singing to him and about him and they're dancing in the street. I mean, that is awesome. All the little Jewish boys are running all over the countryside with slings in their hands, pretending to be him and reenacting his fight with Goliath. He's more popular than the king because the song is like, the king is great, he's killed thousands, but you know who's better than the king? David, because he's still killed tens of thousands. I mean, talk about a really good life. Talk about happy. I mean, talk about a moment where you're just like, yes, like the pinnacle. But you and I both know, like this is just a snapshot in his life. It's not the full picture. It's part of the story, but it's not the full story. And, and so in the chapter right before this, David uh, lets us in on some of the behind the scenes of his life that came before this moment, before he actually battled the giant. And so he's having a conversation. This is just before he goes out to kill Goliath. And he was not the first pick, right? It wasn't like everybody was like, what we really need is a scrawny, scrawny shepherd boy that doesn't know how to fight, can't hold a sword, but really good with a sling. Nobody was thinking that. And so David comes and, and everybody's afraid and the Goliath is out there and David comes to the king. He's like, I'm your man. I don't know what you're doing, what you got. Like your best warriors are over there cowering up here. Dude, let me at him. I got this. And so the king is like, no, you're small, you're inexperienced, you can't wear armor, you don't have a sword, like you don't have experience. And so David begins to give him his resume. And this is what David said in 1 Samuel 17. He says, but David persisted. This is maybe what he shouldn't have led with, right? Remember, he's trying to convince the king that he's the man to go kill a giant. Look, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. You don't understand. I've been shepherding goats and sheep he goes on, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears. It's so matter of fact. I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So David begins to lay out his qualifications to the king for why facing Goliath, him facing Goliath is a good idea. And he leads with, as I said, that he had been tending his dad's sheep and goats. But then he also mentions, mentions fighting a bear and a lion, which I don't I forget fighting a, a, a giant. Like that sounds terrifying. I'd be like, sorry, little sheep. He got you. We're going to go over here and keep these ones safe. <laughs> Make it quick, bear. I don't want to hear him screaming over there, right? But, but honestly, if you're a shepherd, you don't want predators to come and attack, but those are the exciting days when you actually got to get up and take and do something and wrestle a bear or protect the sheep, or you got to actually, like that, those are the moments where like you're in, get, you get, like the adrenaline and the excitement's going and something's got to be going because you chased down a lion and grabbed it and clubbed it to death. And so maybe that's the exciting part. But when you're tending sheep and goats for every day that you fight off a bear, there's probably a thousand days where you just lay in the grass and pick dandelions. 
And also, David didn't just get lucky with Goliath. We know just from history that like ancient slingers of this time in history, like they spent thousands and thousands of hours practicing with a sling. And so there's just all these moments where I just imagine David's out there with the herds on the side of a hill and he's going, okay, off the rock, off the tree, through that bush, nothing but net. And it just, yes, sinks it. And he's just over and over and over and over again. And it's, he didn't realize it at the time, but now that he's saying it, he's starting to realize like all that time spent out there alone was actually preparing me for this moment. I was learning to worship and write songs because he goes on to write a whole bunch of songs because he was out there by himself with just sheep and he was connecting with God and he's worshiping. He learned humility and faithfulness, caring for those sheep and slinging rocks at trees. He was willing to fight battles, not for fame or fortune or to get people to sing for him in the street or a following, but because they were just the right thing to do. He was willing to do things simply because they were fulfilling, not because they were necessarily the most exciting or fun thing in the moment. See, we often think, well, God can just do whatever he wants. And so maybe he just kind of guided that rock. Maybe, you know, David's eyes were closed and he just ran out there and threw a rock and God guided that rock from his sling straight to Goliath's head. And, and maybe, right? Because the, the, it is true that God can do whatever he wants. But notice how David himself talks about it in verse 36 and 37. He says, I've done this to lions and bears and I'll do it again now to Goliath. Okay. He's pretty sure of himself. Verse 37, though, he says, the Lord rescued, just the very next sentence, the Lord rescued me from the bear and the lion, and now he's going to rescue me from the giant Goliath. Wait, wait, wait. So which is it, David? Was it you or was it God? And he's like, yeah, totally. See, I don't want you to miss this. God has such incredible intentions for your life and for your happiness, but we dream so little and we pray so small and we spend all of our time chasing after just something that's fun rather than building a life that's fulfilling. We oftentimes want spectacular results right now, but God most often just works through steady rhythms and routines over Time And we don't want that because that's boring. It sounds mundane and monotonous and who needs that? We ask God for a life that's worth living, but he always seems to respond with what feels more like a life of discipline and habits and work. And we're just like, that's not what I asked for, God. Not realizing that the time spent tending sheep and fighting bears and lions was actually preparing us for the future that he was wanting us to step into. See, everybody wants the, the excitement of slaying a giant in front of the crowd and have people coming out and singing and playing the tambourines and throwing a parade. Everybody wants that. I mean, that's the happiness. But nobody wants to wrestle a bear to protect a stupid goat in a pasture all by themselves when nobody else is around. Now that, that is what creates a fulfilling life. See, the truth is there are a lot of seasons of our life where faith looks and feels a lot more just like faithfulness, which is interesting because that was actually in the list that the apostle Paul created or gave us in Galatians chapter five. 
The problem is that's not always fun or exciting, but it is fulfilling and will build a life of happiness and a life that you love. So the big question this morning is, what is God inviting you to do on a regular basis that may feel mundane or maybe even a little monotonous, but is actually most likely to produce a life that you love? What are the little things that are right in front of you that you can do that may not even sound or look all that spiritual, but can actually produce and make you happy? Now, honestly, from this point forward, we could go a million different ways with this conversation. And the truth is, is that if you begin to open yourself up and ask these questions and have a conversation with God, God may be speaking to you about something very specific and whispering something very much into your soul about something that you need to be tackling or doing, some path that he has for you. But for all of us, you know, I've told you all month in the series that we would be deeply spiritual, but also insanely practical because those things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. And so in this series, because we're talking specifically about how to build a life that you actually love and want to live, how to create happiness, I actually just want to take a step back. I want to zoom out a little bit and I want to give you just some, a few basic practices that no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, no matter if this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church or ever thought about God or ever be, you know, begin to wrestle with some of this stuff, or this has been your whole life since you were little, like that you can actually begin to tackle some of the stuff in your life. Now, before we get to the scriptural part, because some of this doesn't really sound that spiritual, we're going to actually just start with some of the science. And so there are a handful of habits, and we've kind of been landing on some of these things each, each and every week, that for all the data across no matter who you are, across culture, across the world, there's habits that people who report the highest levels of happiness in their life have in common. And so I want to give you three, three very specific ones. Um, here's what it tells, here's, here's what the scientific study says, that people that tend, that, that have, or that are happy tend to have these habits in common. They take care of their bodies, they act their way into feelings, and they pursue the sacred with people, with other people. They take care of their bodies. They know that you can act your way into feelings and they pursue sacred things along with other people. Now, it's kind of amusing to me that all of this is coming from scientific research. I've read a ton of books and studies and published reports from people that have, not, they're not approached, they have no faith. They're not talking about spiritual things at all. They're just looking at data and research and studies and brain chemistry, all this stuff talking about happiness. I've read a ton of books and studies and published research from people who are coming at it from a biblical perspective. And honestly, they don't know it, but they all agree. And so the, the wording of pursuing sacred things with other people, that's written by people who are not, they're just, they're just, they, they don't, they can't say, you should go to church because everybody's like, oh, this is a stupid book. So, but three things they talk about, your body, your mind, and your spirit. They take care of their bodies. They behave their way into feelings and they pursue sacred things, body, mind, spirit, which isn't obviously anything new. And one of the things that's been fascinating for me in all of this is about how much of the science, whether it's neurology or psychology, human physiology, biology, psychiatry, whatever, it all points to these ancient truths in scripture. Body, mind, spirit. Jesus himself talked about this in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. So these people come to Jesus, they're Jesus, what is the most important thing to God? What is the greatest commandment? 
Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Body, mind, spirit. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he answer it that way? Why would he list all of those things? Because you're not just a material being. You're not just a spiritual being. You're both. You're an integrated being with a body, soul, and spirit. And you have to actually take care of each one of them. Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence, but I do think it's helpful for us to actually talk about each one of these things real quick. So we're going to spend the rest of our time just giving a window. And, and we're going to look at the scriptures because I want you to see that all of this matters because all of it's spiritual. So we're going to take them in order because we're constantly being bombarded with information about sleep and nutrition and exercise and reducing stress and anxiety and all that stuff. You don't need me to tell you any of that. You can find better information than I would give you in a couple of seconds Googling. But I do want you to see that your body factors into your happiness because it matters to God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the apostle Paul, who we read a second ago, wrote these words. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. It always cracks me up because like body as temple is like a mantra that's huge in our culture right now. And I'm like, you guys know you're quoting 1 Corinthians, right? Like you didn't come up with that. <laughs> it was written like 2000 years ago. Okay. He says, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price so you must honor God with your body. Now, the context of what he's writing about here was sexuality. He's writing this letter to a specific group of people. And the, the particular problem they were having in their church is the church was having orgies. And he's like, hey, guys, this is a bad idea. Okay, this is not great, not super helpful for families and marriage. So how about you not do that? And here's why. Because God actually it matters what you do with your body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, why would God say this? Because you are a body, soul, and spirit. How you care for one impacts all the others, right? He's given us a principle. And, and the truth is, is, if you trash your physical body, there will be soul and spiritual consequences. Why? Because you are an integrated being. And you've probably experienced some of this. I know I have. And so... You got to take care of your body. And then there's your soul, your mind. Now, the idea that comes from all the research may be the least intuitive and feel the most offensive here. Because here's what all the data says. It says that when we act happily, we are happier. Now, notice I didn't say when we act happy, because that's pretending, right? When you act happily, meaning when you choose or you force yourself to do what happy people do, you will build happiness in your life. Why? Because you receive the benefits from what you do, not from what you feel like doing, whether you felt like doing it or not, right? And we know that physically because if you don't feel like working out, but you do it anyway, you still get the benefits of working out, right? Well, the same is true for your mental and emotional and spiritual health. The same is true for your soul and your spirit as it is for your body. See, you might be wired in a certain way that makes things like smiling and laughing and hugging and connecting and having conversations or shaking hands or putting your arms around somebody or making small talk or whatever that makes those things harder or less natural or more uncomfortable for you. But 
All of those things are habits that happy people do where they connect regularly and build and have more human contact with other people. We're often tempted to think that happiness is what produces those behaviors, that once I'm happy, I'll just have more friends and more relationships. I'll talk to people. I'll feel like hugging people more, but it turns out that those behaviors actually produce happiness. It's the other way around. See, when you act happily, you actually are happier. It's not about what you know to do or what you feel like doing, but what you actually do. And Again, to use the scriptures that as speaking specifically, we only apply this stuff when we read the Bible to spiritual things, but let's just apply it to our whole life. For instance, when you go back to the book of Galatians, where we read a second ago from Galatians chapter five, and you look at the very next chapter, the apostle Paul says over and over and over again, he talks about sowing and reaping. And he's like, you will always harvest what you plant, whether that's whether you're talking about your body or your soul or your spirit, your life, you will always harvest what you plant. And then Jesus, uh, Jesus half brother James in James chapter one verse 22 he says do what God's teaching says do not just listen and do nothing when you only sit and listen you're fooling yourselves and again he's talking specifically about spiritual issues and that's great and that's the way we should apply it but he's laying down a principle that's true no matter what right if you just know what to do but you don't ever do it you're not going to get any of the benefit notice for James feelings didn't come up at all Right? And we know that that's the way it is when it comes to spiritual stuff. Like God lays out for us a way to live, whether we feel like living that way or not, it's the best way to live. See, we don't feel our way into different actions. We act our way into different feelings because you are a body and a soul and a spirit. As I said a second ago, I think it's kind of funny when it comes to the spiritual part all the experts, all the doctors were careful to say things like pursue the sacred with other people. Again, this is not just being spiritual. It's not even just about believing in God, right? I, I think part of it is like people go and they read that stuff. And if it said, hey, not only should you go to church, that's a pretty good idea, go to church, but you should actually make it a bigger part of your life. People would be like, that's dumb. And they're like, okay, well then pursue the sacred along with other people. <gasps> That's so deep. So it's not just being spiritual or even just believing in God. It's having a faith that's regularly experienced and regularly expressed in the context of a particular place and a particular practice and a particular people where it's not just an incidental or peripheral part of your life, but it's fundamental and essential. In other words, don't just go to church actually put down some roots and tend to your soul and cultivate your faith and build relationships in community with other people face to face. See, it's great to watch service online every once in a while, but the magic is here. Not because of me, because of you. By the way, in January of this year, we started this year with a series called Like and Subscribe, that was about spiritual disciplines, the sacred. In February, we had a series called You've Got a Friend in Me that was about friendship and relationships along with other people. So pursuing the sacred along with other people, sometimes it's like we plan this stuff. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on 
toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we can help each other create a life that produces good, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Sometimes when I read this, I think that little phrase he threw in there, he was thinking of somebody specific, not giving up meeting together as some of them are in the habit of doing. Carl. You know, it's like he's just missing the name. I think he wanted to put somebody's name there. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day approaching? The day of Jesus' returns with the day that Paul, the, the writer's talking about. See, <clears throat> here's the thing. We could spend weeks and weeks talking about um, how imperfect this kind of setting is because it is imperfect. We could spend weeks and weeks and we all know someone or have a story where we were connected to a church and it got all sideways and people did stupid stuff and said stupid stuff in the name of God and we got hurt or they got hurt or everybody got hurt and the whole thing blew up. But, and that is real and valid. It is 100% real and valid. But the truth is, is you and I don't swear off working out for the rest of our lives because we had a really bad experience at our favorite gym. We don't even swear off going to the gym. We just find a different gym. We don't be just like, this whole working out thing's a sham. Everybody involved, that trainer's a phony. No, you're like, that guy over there is a jerk. I'm going to go over to this one. By the way, we don't hide the fact that it's just all messed up. It's on a giant sign at the front of our service every week. Why, why do we say that? Because it's, it's all human beings that are frail and broken and messy. And if you came here looking for something different than something else, what you're going to find is I'm probably going to let you down at some point. I don't want to. I'm probably going to disappoint you. I hope I don't. I'm going to do my best to follow the scriptures and love Jesus and love you. But I'm broken and imperfect. So don't let all that mess, and it's real. You got to deal with it and process it. You got to get healed. You do. But don't let that mess keep you from one of the things that's most meaningful and beautiful. And don't take my word for it. We're not talking about the Bible right now. We're talking about all the data about what builds happiness in people's lives. Now, what's not included in that is all the spiritual stuff that we know. What's true about having a relationship with God and the meaning and the depth and the realities of us living beyond this life because the proof of life after death is actually life before death. And so here's the challenge. Here's where we're going to land today. Here's what I invite you to do. Do whatever it is that you need to do in one of these areas for your body or your soul or your spirit. And all of us have work to do in one of these areas. I guarantee you. Some of us, we spend all of the time taking care of our body. That's great. But you neglect your soul or your spirit. Some of us, like I've spent my life 
taking care of and tending my soul and my spirit, neglecting my body. And I've paid all kinds of prices, prices for it. So do whatever it is that you need to do that God is speaking to you about, especially when you don't wanna do it. Why? Because God will get mad at you if you don't, no. Why? Because you know the Bible says, no. Because a good life, happiness is actually, it's not a product of fun, but of fulfillment and of what your life produces. See, God's ultimate plan by the way, for David, wasn't for him to be a warrior who slayed a giant. In our mind, it's tempting for us to see that as like the pinnacle. And he could have just been like, I'm out. I'm going out on a high note. I killed the giant. I'm going to retire in that castle over there. Somebody make t-shirts and swag. I'll be selling those on the streets of Jerusalem every day. But that wasn't God's plan for him. God actually had bigger things. God had created him to be the king of a nation and serve people. And that's a pretty amazing life. But God's plan doesn't happen for him if he doesn't fight and kill Goliath. And he doesn't fight and kill Goliath if he only did what was fun. We think happiness, and uh, think of it as only the happiness and the high or the excitement and the high and the faith that comes from slaying the giant but it's actually born in the routine and the monotony and the faithfulness of daily tending the sheep and engaging your body and your soul and your spirit and taking care of them every single day. God has incredible plans for your life, a life of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. Don't settle for something lesser for a little bit of fun. Because therein lies the life of lasting happiness that you are so desperately chasing. Finally, you cannot tend to your soul and your spirit in the way that you need to apart from a relationship with the Son of God. It's just the way God created you. And so we're going to pray together but I just want to invite you to have a conversation with God about which one of these things he's talking to you about. And if you've never stepped into that relationship with Jesus, he's going to invite you to do that today. Let's pray.